there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Planets, stars, distant galaxies, nebula, meteors, comets, and everything in between. This is Good Heavens, a podcast that takes a deeper look into things about heaven and earth. Here are your hosts, Wayne Spencer and Daniel Ray. The 17th century astronomer Galileo's first-hand account of seeing Jupiter through his newly made telescope in 1610 sounds like it came right out of the pages of a fairy tale. It was in early January, quote, at the first hour of the night, Galileo tells us, when I inspected the celestial constellations through a spyglass, that Jupiter presented himself, end quote. Galileo believed that presentation to be innately personal, nothing less than an unexpected gift from God to the astronomer himself. Quote, I infinitely render grace to God that it has pleased him to make me alone the first observer of an admirable thing, kept hidden all these ages, end quote. As he proclaims in the opening of Sidereus Nuncius, quote, I propose great things for inspection and contemplation by every explorer of nature. Great, I say, because of the excellence of the things themselves, because of their newness, unheard of through the ages, end quote. Such a life-changing revelation, he believed, quote, exceeds all wonders, end quote. When Galileo first saw Jupiter, he tells us, quote, I saw that three little stars were positioned near him, small but yet very bright. Although I believe them to be among the number of the fixed stars, they nevertheless intrigued me, because they appeared to be arranged exactly along a straight line and parallel to the ecliptic, and to be brighter than the others of equal size." End quote. The next night, Galileo was surprised to find the unique stars had changed positions. Quote, I found a very different arrangement, for all three little stars were to the west of Jupiter and closer to each other than the previous night, and separated by equal intervals." End quote. Continued observations led Galileo to the remarkable conclusion these little stars were moving. It moved the astronomer, quote, from doubt to astonishment, end quote. Galileo's telescopic observations of what we now know to be Jupiter's four main moons revolutionized our understanding of the cosmos, shifting our concept of an Earth-centered universe to a Sun-centered solar system. And as telescope technology improved, each new discovery has taken us from doubt to astonishment. The 100-inch Hooker telescope high atop California's Mount Wilson settled once and for all the controversy about the realm of the nebulae. Were these patches of celestial clouds part of our own Milky Way galaxy, or were these nebulae galaxies like our own? Edwin Hubble's meticulous observation of these nebulae through the Hooker telescope demonstrated these were actually galaxies, just like our own Milky Way. Hubble's discovery became public knowledge on New Year's Day in 1925 our concept of the universe would never be the same. English poet Edith Sitwell once paid a visit to Hubble during which the famed astronomer showed her several slides on which the haunting ghost-like spirals of distant galaxies eerily revealed the previous unknown vastness of the universe. These island universes were now known to contain upwards of a hundred billion stars or more. Sitwell thought the images terrifying. And you've probably seen an image or two from the Hubble Space Telescope, named after Edwin Hubble. 
It orbits the Earth every 90 minutes at an altitude between 3 and 400 miles above the Earth. There really are no words to describe how this iconic school bus-sized space telescope has altered our perception of the cosmos. Since its historic launch in 1990, Hubble has provided so much breathtaking images and groundbreaking scientific data that even to this day, no one has been able to go through it all. As David writes in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse reveals his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. Engineers are presently designing and building telescope and satellite technologies that will pull in terabytes and petabytes, a million gigabytes of data from the universe on a daily basis. By quote 2025, we are going to have the square kilometer array, the most sensitive radio instrument ever built, and we expect it will produce more data than we have on the entire internet right now. And that's in a single year, end quote. Galex, an ultraviolet space telescope launched in 2003, produced 20 terabytes of data, 300 million ultraviolet images in its nine years of service. On average, Hubble transmits 17.5 gigabytes of data per week. Over the last 25 years, that's over 22,000 gigabytes of data. According to Dr. Frank Summers in a public presentation on the Hubble Space Telescope's 25th anniversary, there were over 12,000 refereed scientific papers using Hubble's data. Consider just one of Hubble's most iconic images. It comes from the constellation Fornax, meaning furnace in Latin. It is a rather unremarkable group of three stars in the shape of a triangle. The patch of night sky from which the Hubble image was taken to the unaided eye looks rather empty. But in 2004, thanks to the Hubble Space Telescope, that all changed rather dramatically. In an area of sky within Fornax, no bigger than the head of a pin held out at arm's length, the Hubble Deep Fields team extracted one of the most breathtaking images of the heavens ever taken. Within that tiny sliver of empty space, Hubble astronomers uncovered over 10,000 galaxies, a multitude of blazingly variegated worlds, an unexpected, stunning array of hauntingly ethereal light shining amidst the velvet black of space-time fabric. Here was an enormous collection of numinous galactic diadems, the likes of which no human being had ever seen. Swirling strands of emeralds and rubies, sapphires and topaz gems, hanging as glorious adornments in the vastness of deep time, like long-lost ancient treasure. On this episode of Good Heavens, Wayne and I eagerly anticipate the groundbreaking, never-before-seen wonders of the heavens that will be uncovered by the recently launched James Webb Space Telescope. The telescope now sits approximately a million miles away from Earth. Webb's honeycomb-like lenses will be extracting infrared light from the deepest regions of the universe, revealing things to our generation that no human being has ever seen. If all goes according to plan, the first images from the James Webb Space Telescope will be arriving on our tablets and smartphones sometime this summer. So come along with Wayne and me as we lift up our eyes on high and see who has created these stars. Come with us as we explore the possible wonders of the James Webb Space Telescope and how it all might fit into the glory of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wayne, there's such a thing as invisible light. And you ask yourself, what good is invisible light? If I can't see it, what am I going to do with light I can't see? Well, there's a lot of interesting things I can say about that. Well, let's, let's jump into that. Let's, let's just jump in and say, good heavens, Wayne, there's invisible light in the universe. Did you know that? We're going to talk about all that light, but yeah, our little puny <laughs> eyes... Wayne, there's 
good heavens, there is invisible light in the universe. What good is invisible light, Wayne? Why? What? 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 What is this? We're going to talk about this tonight. We're going to talk about invisible light, and we're going to talk about a magic telescope that can see invisible light, and uh, we're going to talk about all kinds of cool science things uh, about invisible light uh, because we just spent ten billion dollars. I don't know who we is, but somebody did. Yeah, spent- and uh, Dan, you know, sometimes insects and birds can see some in. The light that's invisible to us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, ultraviolet and infrared sometimes. I can right. See. Uh, I, I'm probably not the first to think this, but I, I always thought that ultraviolet would be a good, like, girl superhero. <laughs> yeah, somebody should think of that. I, I think I it's probably somebody already has if I've thought about it. I'm slow in the brain. so. But ultraviolet, wouldn't that be a – of course, there's been, like, X-ray man and – all kinds of other stuff, and uh, we're going to talk about a little bit tonight. Uh, we're going to talk about the James Webb Space Telescope. Now, this thing is uh, pretty remarkable. We're going to get into the science of that and talk about what it uh, what it might see, how it's how it works, when it launched. Yes, and uh, so you know, invisible light. This thing looks like a honeycomb. Um, it's got all kinds of cool stuff. It cost $10 billion. People were really nervous when it launched around Christmas time this year. Uh, it was uh, delayed several times. Uh, long project in the making. It's now finally at its home, a million miles away from us. Uh, still unfolding, and they're still working out the kinks. We're going to get some pictures, hopefully this summer, uh, by some point at midsummer, late summer. But uh, very briefly... Uh, you'll, you're going to cover the science of this telescope. I'll just give you a little background for our listeners about who James Webb was. Sure. He was uh, the director of the Space Agency uh, of NASA from February of 1961 to October of 1968. And he is credited for, they say, doing more for science than any other government official. And so he was a very inspirational leader. Um, who encouraged uh, exploration of what we call space. Um, and uh, he had uh, uh, helped President Kennedy uh, and the whole moon thing uh, become a reality. Remember Kennedy's vision? Right. That would have been right uh, after Kennedy's yeah. big, big um, speech. We don't, he, you know, when he was at Rice, Texas here, at Rice University in Texas, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we don't go to the moon because it's easy. We go to the moon because it's hot. Because it's hot. Right. And um, and then his speech to Congress, um, we're going to land a man on the moon before the end of this decade and return him safely to Earth. Um, you know, Kennedy's immortal words. But James Webb was the, the guy, you know, Kennedy was the speechmaker. He's the president. James Webb was kind of the guy that uh, that made that happen. Of course, he, he was instrumental in um, getting all that done. And so... He was. He had a vision of space research, space science research today that uh, is unparalleled. And so, um, his vision, his leadership, um, was the inspiration behind uh, naming this telescope after Mr. Webb. And if you want more information on that, you can go to uh, jwst.nasa.gov, James Webb Space Telescope.nasa.gov, and you can uh, look up. Uh, more information on Mr. Webb, but tonight we're going to actually talk about the space telescope that bears his name and all the wonderful details about this telescope uh, that uh, is designed, Wayne, to look at invisible light. We've been talking about that. Yes, it's an infrared telescope, and a lot of people have heard of the Hubble Space Telescope, Right, but... but uh, uh, the James Webb Telescope is not a successor to Hubble. It's actually a successor to a different telescope called the Spitzer. Right. And it was another person who was famous, but Spitzer was actually, the, the use of the Spitzer telescope was retired right when the launch of the James Webb telescope uh, was done. Lyman Spitzer was the visionary patriarch for space telescope technology. Did you know that, way? I didn't realize that. Yes. Spitzer had a visionary idea for a general space telescope. Guess what year he started? He put pen to paper and started getting his ideas out there. Guess what year? Uh, I would guess in the 70s, maybe. 
actually, it's all the way back before C.S. Lewis published The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Really? Started started writing The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Wow. Yes, Lyman Spitzer had an idea for a space-based telescope in 1946. Wow. He was thinking ahead. Yeah, so that is, you have to understand the historical context here. That's uh, 11 years. That's amazing. Before Sputnik. And Sputnik was the first orbital thingamabob. Uh, and if you had a transistor radio or something, some <laughs> device in 1957, you could hear the deet, 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 deet as uh, Sputnik uh, went around the Earth. And I don't know if it's still there, but they had actually had a uh, – there was only like three or four Sputniks, and the Fort Worth Museum of Science and Science had one. I don't know if they still have one or not, but it was hanging in their astronomy thing for a while, and I actually got to see that. Um, but Sputnik is not much bigger than a basketball or maybe slightly bigger, I don't know. But, yeah, Spitzer was thinking of an orbital space-based telescope in 1946. And um, I want to read you the sentence <laughs> that opened his paper about space-based telescopes. Okay. It was, call- it was called an astronomical – it was called Astronomical Advantages of an Extraterrestrial Observatory. So this this is the paper that started the idea for – Uh, space telescopes. And it begins with this very droll sentence. This study points out in a very preliminary way the results that might be expected from astronomical measurements made with a satellite vehicle. That's Mm -hmm. the opening opening sentence that inspired (laughs) space telescopes. How about that? You just never know. Yeah. You know, if you, if you, you just never know what your sentence is going to do. So, so if you, if you're good at writing, you could inspire the world with a. You might think, well, that's a boring sentence, but it was the sentence that. Well, that it was there a, it is. He was the first to have the idea and publish something on it, and gave gave others the idea. That's right. And how long? So, Mr. Spitzer had to patiently wait for Hubble was launched in 1990. So he had to wait 44 years for his dream to come true. Yeah. But he is now the the Hubble doesn't have his name because the Hubble was named after Edwin Hubble, who discovered uh, galaxy expansion, and uh, he's the one that that uh, settled the debate about galaxies being nebulae or galaxies in the 1920s with the hundred inch hooker inch hundred inch hooker telescope on Mount Wilson. So uh, Hubble's uh, Spitzer's dream it got delayed a little bit. He 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 was he was at the launch. He was seventy five at the launch of the Hubble Space Telescope back in nineteen ninety. He was watching it. Um, but uh, that telescope bore his name. But then, of course, Spitzer did eventually get his name on a telescope, which is what you mentioned, which is the Spitzer Infrared Space Telescope. It was launched in 2003, and it was part of the great observatories of NASA. So you had the Hubble Space Telescope, you had the Spitzer Space Telescope, and then you had the Chandra X-ray Telescope. And those were the great observatories, and there are many nebulae and galaxies that have been imaged by all three of those telescopes. Uh, the famous uh, 1987A supernova was imaged by all of those telescopes. And you can go online and see the different perspectives and the different kinds of light that is emitted um, from that supernova through those telescopes. So they have a composite of all the telescopes put together, which is really a wonderful picture. And then they have the individual composites of each of the individual telescopes that image that supernovae. Yeah, and um, the Spitzer did something really unique, which was, uh, uh, you know, if we look up in the sky at the Milky Way, you see the band across the sky. Well, right. the Spitzer did that from in space and, and did a, a 360-degree panorama view of the Milky Way. Wow, uh, yes. Looking all the, in every direction from outside the Earth. And right. there's a YouTube video I found. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, I'm afraid, but that was that showed this at the end of the program. It was amazing. Mm. Uh, it's, it's a unique thing, a big continuous long strip that was pieced together from many photographs from Spitzer. Mm, mm. Wow. Well, and it's it's been a remarkable telescope. But um, we're sitting here talking about infrared light, 
And, uh, you know, this is light. Yeah, let's talk about light some more because a lot of people don't know much about this. It's, you know, we see uh, a narrow little strip of the whole electromagnetic spectrum. And there's a, you wanted to, uh, before we go too far with this, let's begin with a a verse of scripture that you had uh, to talk about this, which I think it it fits perfectly with what we're going to talk about tonight. Yeah, this is talking about God and it's... uh, it's, it's Psalm 139, verse 12, and it's talking about how God can see things and the, that we can't. Uh, mm-hmm. says, Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. So there's nothing that God can't see. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, but we are limited in what we see. We're very limited in what we see. In yeah. fact, Dan, uh, sometimes insects and birds can see some of the invisible parts of the light spectrum that we don't see. Wow! Yeah, that's pretty um, cool. But the 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 electromagnetic spectrum covers everything from gamma rays, X rays, ultraviolet, and then they're visible as kind of in the middle. And then there's infrared and then microwaves and radio waves and then radio waves just keep on going kind of the uh, the visible light is kind of in the middle and it has kind of blue and purple and violet on one end. And if you kept on going in that direction up in frequency, you would get the ultraviolet and then x-rays and then gamma rays. Mm. And if you go the other, the other end of the spectrum, if from the red end and you keep going, then you get to infrared. So and that's what we're talking about. The infrared, we cannot see with our naked eyes. Mm-hmm. Ultra, ultraviolet and X-rays and so on, we can't see with the naked eyes. Gamma rays and X-rays are kind of dangerous. They can be harmful. And uh, microwaves and radio waves, we use a lot for different things. But infrared is now used for a lot of different things. And uh, the infrared part of the spectrum uh, is a lot broader than what we see in visible light. Mm-hmm. So there's the infrared is separated into multiple bands that are used for different things. So you might have heard of uh, near infrared, which is used for things like uh, uh, fiber optics that has uh, internet signals or, or uh, data signals sometimes over is in near, the near infrared and what's called short wavelength infrared. Mm-hmm. And then there's, uh, there's devices like firefighters have infrared cameras that, so they can see through smoke in a room. Mm. So they, if there's someone lying on the floor hurt, mm. they yeah. can see, see the, the heat from their body right, uh, with right. the camera. So, and, um, we have, uh, uh, remote controls for TVs and other kinds of electronic stuff, devices, right? And those used infrared. And there's, uh, I've, I've done this. Now, this is a little, my hands-on experience with infrared. When I was in the military in the 1990s, I was deployed to a remote region of an Egyptian desert. And uh, it was my task. I was the uh, battalion, I was the unit's uh, photographer, and uh, since we were in a remote desert area in a camp, uh, our facilities were very uh, primitive. We had trailers and campers and things, but uh, I had a dark room where I developed all my photography. Um, as long as it was black and white, I developed all of our battalion's photography in a dark room with the chemicals and everything. Now, uh, in, instead of using, you know, if this is this is old school, it's kind of dating people. You, photography nowadays is digital, and I don't know how many of our listeners would remember dark rooms and all the chemicals that you would use to develop pictures. Yeah. But in a, in a traditional dark room, you had uh, this red light that you used, this low lighting that you could see what you were doing. Well, we didn't have one of those. So what did I do? I went to the uh, arms room every every day when I went into the film area of the dark room, and I got myself a pair of night vision goggles, which is infrared vision. Oh. <laughs> and it's just as you were explaining, like the fire department's uh, technology for seeing people in smoke, 
these infrared goggles would pick up the body heat of people at night. You could see heat radiating off of soldiers or radiating, right. radiating off of people in the distance. But it's very good for seeing in dim light. And I did all of our photography development using night vision goggles, which was basically infrared light. So that's Well, pretty, that's a pretty good solution there. Yeah, it was. It was. Um, but I should just say, too, because we are uh, the, the James Webb camera uh, is uh, near infrared. One of them, I don't know how many cameras it has. We'll get into that maybe. But uh, there's actually, um, I mean, I don't want to get too sidetracked from the, from the light discussion here, but there's actually officially on March 11th, which is just a couple of weeks ago from the time we're recording this, um, the James Webb completed its uh, fine phasing. It got all its mirrors in line, and uh, it was focused on a star and got one star focused. And so there's actually a picture out there right now of the first imaged picture from James Webb is out there and available. <clears throat> it uh, they, they took a picture of a star called 2 mass J17554042 plus 6551277. That's a terrible name for a star. Well, you know what? I th- they should call that the James Webb star. I don't know. They should just call that the Webb star yeah, or something like that. So. But there's a, it's a beautiful picture. It's a star with six spikes on it, um, and it's it's what they focus the mirrors on. But the James Webb is so powerful that as they were fixing this, you can see distant galaxies behind this star. It's a beautiful picture. Yeah, so um, what, they, what they really do is really interesting. The, the, um, the telescope goes out into space with the mirrors all folded up uh-huh. and, and it's it has to fold up into kind of three sections because it's really kind of large in and uh it's 20 some feet across the whole mirror and th- so the mirrors have to fold fold out so that they're all uh you know make one surface and then every one of those there's 18 of these mirrors every one of them has to uh, be lined up so that it, they're so precisely aligned so that you can take the images of each, your, your, what you've got is each of the 18 uh, mirrors are looking at the same object and you focus it so precisely that you, you put the images in, ends up being stacked right on top of each other for all. So it's like taking the image and, magnifying it 18 times um and they're very sensitive super powerful super powerful and uh so the james webb is a more powerful telescope than the spitzer was and it covers a little bit broader uh wavelengths so Mm -hmm. we can see different things Mm -hmm. so how what do you what do you think they do with why would astronomers want to use infrared well infrared is able to see through dust and certain things in space that kind of obstructs our view of our with our naked eye and so you can actually see through dust some to some degree and it's able to see a lot of important things so the kind of thing you learn from infrared is really important it's like the, the the temperature of an object you can get spectra which you can identify what gases are in a in a star or in a nebula, you can uh, you might be able to see a disk around a star, and you might be able to tell if there's a uh, an exoplanet there, maybe. Mm. Um, so they they like to study exoplanets. You know, we I've studied exoplanets a lot. So the uh, the infrared images are done by first you collect the data, and really what it does it's like a it's like a digital thing, uh, Dan. It's not really a photo. You don't really get a photo per se. You, what you, what it does is uh, it collects the data at different wavelengths of light. Then it's combined, and then you you assign colors the way you want to. Gotcha. To to, to see different parts of the spectrum. So you can do like okay, if there's certain lines that show up from hydrogen, you can in the spectrum that you can assign that maybe a red color or an orange. And then if it's something else, like if it's oxygen, you can assign that to blue maybe, or not yeah. nitrogen could be green, or you could look at whatever right. you want to see. And so you, so you see all these images and you might, if you're looking at the Hubble image, like we're familiar with Hubble space telescope pictures. If you compare to Hubble, you might, 
you might see just kind of a whitish color to the, to the whole image, right? But they can take that and sort of colorize it with the infrared data so that you can see things that you wouldn't be able to tell with the naked eye. If you were, yeah. if you're looking yeah. at it with a visible light, it would just might look all the same color and it kind of blurs together. But with, right. with infrared, you can highlight certain parts of it and you can t- tell details that you may not be able to see otherwise. Right. I, uh, it's funny you mention that because I know you remember we did back in 2018, we did the Hubble meets Narnia. We had Dr. Ward talking about yeah. C.S. Lewis, and then we brought Anton Kokomoer to Texas, mm-hmm. uh, and Dr. Kokomoer is a Hubble expert, and he does exactly what you just described. In fact, the Hubble deep field images are Dr. Kokomoer's work. He oversaw this, and what they do, what you just described, they take stacks and stacks and stacks of photographs, pictures, images from Hubble, they they put them together as a composite, and then Dr. Kokomore is he's one of the people that he's the chief engineer of how he, how these images were created. He assigns colors, and and they try to be. He said they try to be realistic about the colors. As you said, if it's oxygen, we'll color it. What an, what color an oxygen would be if you know, or or a carbon or something like that. And they try to color it realistically, but that's that's his chief job was was imaging these deep field pictures. Uh, to to release to the public, so yeah, that's it's, it's fascinating. Well, there's a what I'm trying to explain though is there's a difference with Hubble. Because, so with Hubble, it was visible a visible light telescope, although it had various instruments on it. Yes. So, yes. but they wanted so they wanted to look like the realistic color. If you were, uh, if you were, in a place that you could see it clearly, what would it look like? But the 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 issue is kind of different when you're looking at infrared because so they can really color it however they want to, just to f- be able to see or to be able to find certain details, so it doesn't have to look the normal color. Well, it, they're not trying to make it look the normal color. They're trying to make it look some color scheme that will allow them to find something or see something they wouldn't normally tell. Yeah, I, I understand that the color itself enables them to find things. Yeah. Um, whereas Hubble, they find things and then they color it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. I think that's the way they do it. I'm not an astrophysicist. But, uh, but what, I, I, what I suggest people do if you have some time is look for Spitzer Space Telescope images and you yes. will find examples of some of the beautiful things that they can do with the infrared telescope. There's really some beautiful pictures. I believe they infrared. I think Spitzer took a picture of it. Could I could be wrong, but uh, the Pillars of Creation. There is an infrared image of of that. Um, there's an the the one I mentioned at the beginning was there's an infrared image of supernova SN 1987A. Um, it's just kind of an orangish fuzz. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, if you Google Spitzer images, there's a ton of beautiful things out there. So, um, so what, so what Spitzer did were really well, the <laughs> James Webb is going to do even better. Yes. Yes. And, uh, we're going to see things. And, and the interesting thing about the web is that it's a million miles away from us, Wayne, which is the furthest out any telescope has ever been. And uh, why don't we take a minute? This would be a good time to talk about where James Webb is, because this is also as fascinating as the telescope is. This to me, this aspect of of where they decided to put James Webb to me speaks of of how God has it was like he planned it for us to do this. (laughs) It's such a wonderful thing. Yeah. Uh, So we could talk about the Lagrange points. Yeah. There's five Lagrange points and this, these points actually exist for any uh, object orbiting the sun really, but it's mostly about if the orbit is close to a circle, which our orbit is. So L1 is on a direct line between earth and the sun. And so it's basically a point between the Earth and the Sun, where the uh, the gravitational forces balance out, so uh, an yes. object that if there was an object there, it would be pretty stable there. Well, there was a that was uh, this happened in the Apollo missions. 
So when the the so any two, I think the the science is any two orbiting bodies like stars can have Lagrange points, mm-hmm. like binary stars, uh, Earth Moon system, right. uh, Jupiter and the Sun, Earth and the Sun. Any two orbiting bodies can have these Lagrange points, and so there's Lagrange points between the Moon and the Earth. And the Apollo astronauts, the, between the Earth and the Moon, there's this point of gravitational equilibrium. So there was a point where the rocket ship, the rocket, the, the space capsule, on the way to the Moon was literally in the balance between Earth and the Moon. So they weren't being pulled by the Moon, and they weren't being pulled by the Earth. They <laughs> shut off their thrusters, they could just sort of, sort of be stuck there. They just coasted there. It's just just yeah. coasted there, just sat there in a, in a kind of a, a, a balance in that gravitational tug between the Earth and the Moon. And so um, what's fascinating was these Lagrange points were predicted by a, a French mathematician. His name was Lagrange. Yes. That's how you would say it in France. Yeah. Um, Joseph he, Louis, Louis Lagrange. <laughs> Yeah, Joseph Louis Lagrange. Um, he it's like um, mathematically predicted these things. We didn't have the technology to verify his predictions, um, but I don't know when we started to do this. But it, it, it we started to to recognize this uh, when we were detecting the moons, uh, the asteroids that were in the the Grange points between Jupiter. Uh, and the sun. So the Jupiter orbits our sun. Jupiter and the sun have Lagrange points. And the Lagrange points L4 and L5 between Jupiter and the sun had all of these asteroids, tons, thousands of these asteroids. And now they've imaged a ton of them. And there's uh, there's graphic images that you can see about all of the asteroids that are surrounding the Lagrange points between Jupiter and the sun. And what's actually yielded is the discovery that, that Jupiter keeps a ton of asteroid debris away from the inner solar system because of these Lagrange points. Yes, it, it, it protects the Earth. It protects uh, so the Earth. So the L4 and L5 points are along the orbit. So yes. if you're talking about yes. Jupiter, they right. are the L4 is ahead of Jupiter, the direction of Jupiter's motion, yes. and L5 is behind it. And uh, if you... Made three dots with the L four point, the Sun, and Jupiter. That would make an equilateral triangle. Yeah, it's amazing. Sixty Absolutely degree amazing. angles. Sixty so, degree angles. So that it's it's equidistant between the Sun and the the Jupiter in this case. And same thing happened would happen with Earth. And there's I think Earth actually has a few small we do uh, asteroids in in one of those. Lagrange points. I don't remember which one it mm-hmm, is. Mm-hmm. And then, so the L1 is between Earth and the Sun, and L2 is on the opposite side of yes. the Earth away from the Sun, and L2 yes. is where the James Webb telescope is. Yes. And Dan, the uh, Spitzer telescope was behind Earth in the orbit, and I don't know for sure. It may have been at the L5 point, but I don't know exactly where it was. L2, and if you look this up online, it's fascinating. If you look at all the five points of the Lagrange points and you you tilted them sideways, you have this wonderful geometric pattern. But the five points, it kind of makes the shape, and I'm not saying anything about this necessarily, but it makes the shape, in some sense, it makes the shape of a cross. Uh, but this is to point out that the, the, geome- the specific geometry, the, the, the near-perfect angles, between these objects and these these orbital bodies, um, but what's going on at L two, Wayne? What what why why did we put? Um, and that's a million miles away from Earth. Why did we? What is that? What, I mean, what's so fascinating? Why put a telescope out there? What's going on? Well, I I think for one thing, there wasn't anything major already there that would get in the way, but it's also what they want for an infrared telescope. They want it to be very very cold. It's got to be very, very cold because you don't want any heat to interfere mm. with the telescope. The, an infrared telescope is measuring really, really faint heat from objects. Yeah. And so the James Webb telescope, if you've seen pictures of it, it has these huge, thin sheets that are like five of them below it. And then what it, what the, the, the uh, mirrors are pointed out away away from the earth and so the these thin films are blocking the the heat radiation that's coming from earth and the moon 
And okay. so, so the James Webb is at L2, and that's so it's on the opposite side of Earth, away from the sun. Um, and the the heat, these thin films I'm talking about, is, two, is five big sheets that shield the shield it from the heat. Now, Dan, I heard some numbers from an engineer on a video. Is an engineer was saying that on the on the side of those uh, films that's close to the earth on the side of the earth it's like uh i think they said how would they say 200 and some degrees fahrenheit 250 or something degrees fahrenheit wow that's that's the amount of heat it absorbs wow it, at a million miles from earth or whatever then on the other other side this the cold side where the telescope is and the mirrors are it is 370 degrees below zero. Wow, that sounds like Texas in the spring. <laughs> so it shields very well. It's real. It's hot on one side and really, really cold on the other side. That sounds like uh, our weather here in Texas. It was uh, 80 degrees just the other day, and it's uh, 50. It, it's, it seems like that some days in Texas, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny because um, I say funny, but... You know, Lyman Spitzer, in that paper that I was telling you about in 1946, uh, where he was envisioning space telescopes, this quote could could easily have been describing what we're talking about with the James Webb. Uh, Spitzer says this in this paper. Now, keep in mind, this was written in 1946, before Sputnik. He says, quote, such a scientific tool, that is a space telescope vehicle, if practically feasible, could re- revolutionize astronomical techniques and open up completely new vistas of astronomical research. And you hear that and you go, well, duh. <laughs> I mean, just think of all the wonderful things that Chandra, the X-ray, the Hubble, and, and, and Spitzer, and now James Webb. And Wayne, it's funny because I've been having these discussions. We just talked to Danny Faulkner, um, and uh, we, we said, you know, he, he was on our book club, and uh, James, my boss, asked him, uh, what do you think the the Webb's going to find? James Webb's is going to find, and you know, Danny made the point that uh, anytime we build a telescope, we always revolutionize our understanding of the universe. So, what's super exciting, and they say this on the NASA webpage, on the James Webb page, um, they say Webb is the world's premier space uh, science observatory, and once fully operational, will help solve mysteries in our solar system. And I'm thinking it'll probably create more mysteries. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Then it's going to solve. I mean, maybe we solve a couple. Maybe we maybe we see things and we go, "Oh, that's what that is." But uh given the the nature of how Hubble has unfolded wonders of the universe and and Spitzer and all that, I think Webb, I think the images that Webb brings back are going to blow our minds and people will be going, "What?" Um but every time we do that, every time we build a big telescope, um our our perception of the universe undergoes a radical shift. Um, oh yeah, there's I, always surprises. There's always things that we uh, we're able to figure out that we couldn't tell before. Um, yeah. So it's always good to have better data, better pictures, better images like right. this. Let me finish that quote from Spitzer again. 1946. Lyman Spitzer says this. He says, "Quote: Such a radically new and more powerful instrument would be not to supplement our present ideas of the universe we live in." but rather to uncover new phenomena not yet imagined and perhaps to modify profoundly our basic concepts of space and time. That was written in 1946, Wayne. That's really amazing. Yeah. uh, You know, Dan, I was just thinking about, this brings me back to that Bible verse, and I didn't mention this. Yeah. So as human beings, we're finite, we're limited, right? And... We are always doing something with our science that makes us able to see or or somehow experience something that we couldn't see uh, naturally with our own senses. So that's what infra, uh, infrared telescope does for us. It allows us to see things we couldn't see. So we're not. It, it gets us beyond our limitations in a way. That's right. So that's and right. you know. We, as we think of God, he is not limited the way we are limited. And mm. and to do to get beyond our limitations 
it takes hard work and it takes science of building a telescope like this. And we build other things like infrared cameras and we have all these other things that we've done with our technology. And it, it's all getting us beyond our limitations. Well, and it's interesting too, the the parallel, Wayne, and I wanted to do a, I may do a paper on this or a pod, maybe we can do a podcast on this at some other point in time. But uh, talking about the nature of light in the Bible, you know, the Bible says that God is light. Um, and uh, that James says that uh, all good and perfect gifts come from the Father of lights, uh, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Right. And so if, if, if physical light that God has created has many invisible levels, how much more so is, is God as light? Um, you know, so much left to discover about God, even as Christians, we think we, we put God in a box and we know all about him. I mean, that was Job's problem, right? Job thought he had all the, I, I pray, I do this, I do that, and, and, you know, I'm good with God. I've got all my sheep and I've got all my camels and I've got my family. And then suddenly, boom, out of nowhere, this horrible stuff happens. And Job's like, why, God, why? And, you know, he wants an audience with God and then he gets the audience with God. And then what does God do? He first thing he asked Job is, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you guide the bear with their satellites? Right. Do you know about creation? And Oh, Dan, this makes me think of another really neat thing about God and light. Yeah. Um, in Genesis, when uh, it was after the flood was over with, and you remember... Um, um, God was speaking to Noah after the flood and um, he made certain promises and he said, I have put my bow in the clouds as a promise Yeah, that uh, there will never again be a global flood uh, mm. to flood the earth. Now, what does it mean by my bow? It's not just a bow. It says my bow. And if you go into Ezekiel chapter 1, it, there's a description of God's throne, God's throne. And it seems to describe what's like a rainbow, a three, mm. a, like a 360-degree rainbow mm. uh, um, above God's throne. So that's God's rainbow. So the rainbow is – and you can you – the rainbow is like something – Around God's throne, apparently. And it's amazing, too, when you think about what we know of a rainbow, uh, where you you need storm clouds, you need rain, uh, yeah. and you need sunlight, and you need sun. And and so there's this, this backdrop of darkness, but then there's this profusion of sunlight, and you have the two combined, but with the rainbow, you have... You have this backdrop of tragedy, right? You have or or storms or something fierce and powerful, mm-hmm. and then you ha- you have something beautiful and life giving and warm like the sun. You have this combination of power and and light and beauty all arranged to to give and to remind us of of God's justice, of His mercy, of His power, of His omnipotence. And it's sad too, Wayne, because you you bring up the rainbow. You think how the rainbow culturally today has been co opted. Um, and used in in derogatory means uh, that it's no longer a symbol of God's promise, but something else entirely. And uh, it's yeah, I think it's worth remembering and reminding people. It really is originally a symbol of God's promise. Of, yeah, that hasn't uh, changed. Hasn't that has changed. Not, has not changed. And when you see the bow in the cloud, it is not just a rainbow. It is God's rainbow. That's right. And, I I know we've shared this in, in other podcasts before, but you know, Wayne, the other aspect of light is that in Matthew chapter five of uh, verses fourteen through sixteen. I mean, Jesus Jesus identifies himself as the light of the world. The Bible says that God is light, but when Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew chapter five and the Beatitudes, Jesus says, "You are the light of the world. That a city on a hill cannot be hidden, and uh, who who whoever lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, no, but you light a lamp." And you put it in the room in the house for everybody to see, and you are the light of the world. So let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And what does, I love what Jesus says to um, Moses, not Moses, uh, Abraham in Genesis fifteen five, Takes Moses outside, Moses, I keep calling Abraham Moses, 
takes Abraham outside. I think his name was Abram at the time. Um, and take some stargazing. Wouldn't you like to go stargazing with God? That would be wonderful, right? <laughs> <laughs> I just imagine that. That's like so wonderful. And he takes Abram outside and he says, count the stars if you're able. And he says, so shall your descendants be. And so I know we've talked about this. This is my the way I, when I look at stars, this blows me away. Because if, if what Jesus says is true, that your, your, your descendants, Abram, are going to be like the stars, as numerous as the stars in the heaven, and then in other places he says as numerous as the sand on the seashore. But if you think about where did God put the stars when he created everything? Into the rakia, right? The stars go into the expanse. And what is the expanse? But the expanse is something that was created when God separated the waters from the waters, right? So whoosh. He separated water from water, and into mm. the expanse he put the sun, moon, and the stars, right? Well, where's the, where's the one place in the Bible where God sort of recreates the creation event? Where does he display his rec- recreating power? In the Exodus, what does he do? He separates the water from the water, dry land appears, and who does he put in between the water? Abram's descendants. Isn't that fascinating? The, uh, the, the yeah. lights of the world, that the, the Abraham's descendants are like the lights of the world. They're like the stars in the sky. Exactly how God created the stars in the sky. Separated the water from the water, boom, created an expanse. Whoosh, put the stars into the expanse. <laughs> Same with the Exodus. Whoosh, I'm going to separate the water. I'm going to put you in between the water. You're going to walk through on dry land, and you're going to be saved. And so the salvation of Israel is through the expanse uh, this is the separating of the waters. God saves Israel through this miraculous turn of events. So I think there is something fascinatingly connected to the rakia and salvation in Jesus that all of creation points to us being put into Jesus, as I think it's Ephesians, where we are in Christ before the foundation of the world. Acts 17, Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. And so we are, Jesus is the light of the world. And as Christians, we are in Christ and we are his lights of the world, reflecting his lights uh, and, and that. So I think any any kind of physical light that we see in the universe, I think it directly attests to and reminds us of, of God. And so I'm excited for this Hubble, not Hubble. I got all these telescope names messed up. Um, I just went out my head. Webb. I'm excited for Webb because it's going to show us light, Wayne, nobody's ever seen before. Nobody yeah. in, in the yeah. history of human beings has ever gonna, has ever seen what we're about to see. This summer, light will be revealed that no human being has ever laid eyes on ever before, and that is absolutely scary. If you're not a little scared, <laughs> you don't understand what's going on. This is going to be a, revel, a kind of revelation no human being has ever seen before. Uh, I think it's going to be fascinating and terrifying. And in fact, it reminds me of the story with um, Edwin Hubble. Shortly after he had proved with the 100-inch Hooker telescope that these island universes, what uh, what uh, Harlow Shapley thought were clouds, nebulae, turned out to be galaxies like our own Milky Way. This freaked people out. This is like, whoa, wait a minute, are you serious? The universe just got really huge. And so there was an English poet by the name of Edith Sitwell who came to visit Hubble. I don't know if he went to visit her or she came to visit him. One or the other. He showed her his photographic plates of Andromeda and other galaxies. And she is said to have said how terrifying. She was literally, like, terrified about the prospect of how enormous the universe, was, the universe had become because of Hubble's discovery. And so I'm, I'm kind of on that edge right now. Like, like what's James Webb going to gonna find? It's going to be so amazing. And it's so cool to be alive at this time to be able to see uh, something that no human eye has ever seen before. Yes, and uh, I was learning about Spitzer, Dan, and uh, something I did not know about the solar system. Spitzer took an image of that there's almost no other telescope uh, or devices that could image this. But Spitzer, there's a there is a ring around Saturn that's not like the the rings we know of from the pictures. It's it's farther out. It's I think it's out somewhere around where some of the moons orbit, and it's a it's a very diffuse, very thin sort of donut shaped cloud, and it's very thin. But it's a kind of donut-shaped cloud. Wow! That's out at it, and it's at a tilted at a different angle than Jupiter than Saturn is. 
So it's not lined up with Saturn's equator, and I think it's probably lined up with some of the moon orbits, but it's uh, very hard to get a picture of, and Spitzer got a picture of it. Wow. And I didn't even know about this, and Spitzer was the only thing that could really image it. Wow, that's fascinating. Do they have any idea what that is? Well, there are gases and, and material that comes off of the moons, it's probably from the moons, but I don't. I haven't read any of the. Oh, details. I see. Like, like a uh, a moon with a bad exhaust system, just throwing out stuff. <laughs> Maybe. Well, not exactly, but there's there, there's a magnetic field on Saturn, and it causes particles to kind of sl- slam into these moons, and okay. it sort of kicks up uh, uh, ions and atoms come off the surface. All right. They get kind of scattered around the the orbit of the moon. Well, we'll need to uh, we'll try to uh, connect that image. Uh, we'll put a link or a picture of it if we can in the notes below. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure. We, I saw it in a video on YouTube, but I'm not sure where you'd find it. But we'll try to track it's a, it down. It's a neat Spitzer image. It's fantastic. And so that's that's an example of something that is pretty hard to to see without infrared. Mm. Infrared is great for faint things that are hard to see. Mm, mm, yeah. I wonder, um, you know, I, do you know, are you familiar with Danny Faulkner's um, thesis about what the cosmic microwave background radiation is? I think he uh, talked. I haven't read it, no. but He, uh, he, I thought we talked about it when with you. I don't remember. But anyway, he talked about it recently on the last podcast uh, or on our book club. I forgot which one it was. We had him on the podcast and we had him on a book club. I'll put those links to those conversations in the description notes below. Um, Danny says he thinks that the cosmic microwave background radiation is actually low faint radiation from the actual water at the edge of the universe that we read about in Genesis. He yes. Has no, so, I think that's very reasonable mm-hmm. uh, thought. You know, he, he said it, it requires a lot more research and somebody like um Danny with that kind of uh, uh knowledge that's not something to sneeze at cuz Danny's a, a solid scientific astronomer so he kind of knows he he knows his stuff he's not just making this up um and it, yeah, the way he, he really does it, he knows he really knows his science um and the way he describes that is fascinating so i'm thinking i'm wondering if webb with its infrared sensitivity might not um give us a little bit more detail about the, what the cosmic microwave background radiation might be i don't know if they're going to do an experiment or not um, or if it looks beyond that, or if it looks—I'm uh, not sure what uh, what its capabilities are going to be. But uh, it's—we're uh, supposed to be getting images in uh, this summer sometime. I don't know if it's uh, early summer or late summer. There's several more months of uh, mission preparation they have to do with the lensing and everything else like that. But uh, yeah, it's really, like six months of preparing it and right, and, right, uh, aligning it right. And everything. well, it's—it's—you're uh, doing remote control from a million miles away. <laughs> so yeah, I, I imagine you push a button, you got to wait a few days <laughs> for us. I don't know how how fast the transmission goes. Uh, but, uh, it would it wouldn't be a long wait. I think it's less than an hour, but I'm I don't remember. It uh, it takes uh, a few minutes when you uh, drive a rover on Mars. I wonder what the delay is, um, and it's out behind Mar- Mars is about twenty minutes. I think the telescope is not as as far as Mars though, so I think it would be. Um, I don't know. Ten or ten or fifteen minutes would be my guess, but well, I don't. We know apologize exactly. to you, the listener, for not having that uh, data with us. Maybe I'll try to include that in the notes. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to know how how long it takes to push a button, a command to to web before web actually moves, uh, right? Uh, well, uh, that's an interesting question. If if you if you know the answer to that question, put it in the notes uh, below. Let us know in the comments uh, if we don't find it. If I find it, we'll put it in the notes. Um, so, uh, anyway, Wayne, that this, there's, there's so much, I mean, we don't know. There's, there's that one image I talked about, uh, that you can look up and you can go to the JT, uh, JW, uh, ST for more updates, information, all kinds of anything, James Webb. Uh, it's the place to go for, uh, for, for web information. But, uh, uh, we're probably Wayne, I would guess we're probably one of the few podcasts out there in the universe that are actually trying to do a, a biblical, biblical perspective on on what we're talking about here in the universe. So it's it's uh, that's what we yes. have to do. You know how 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 will this reveal further the glory of God? And uh, you know we don't have all the answers. We certainly uh, are as excited as anybody to see what uh, wonders await us. And to me, it's just so cool 
uh, to be able to uh, anticipate seeing things that no one in human history has ever seen before. That's right. That's, yeah. that's, just, that's just fascinating, exciting time. Um, and there's probably, I don't know if there's something in the works already, but uh, I don't know if there's a bigger telescope. There's always probably somebody planning a bigger telescope. Oh, I, I heard something about this, Dan. NASA, oh, is, Dan, NASA is already planning the successor <laughs> of the James Webb Telescope. Oh my gosh! When's they just to they just launched the the James Webb at Christmas Day, yeah, twenty twenty one. Right, and I forget what it's called, but it's going to be kind of similar in terms of having these uh, heat shields and then a a big multi segment mirror of some, but it's going to be even bigger. Are there any astronomers left to name a telescope after? Like, who could they name this one after? I don't know. Probably, I was, I was maybe. <laughs> Would they would they go back in time and like we've 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 done? Is there a Tycho Brahe telescope? I don't think so. I that think... would be that would be that would be fun if they had like the the lens cap of the Tycho Brahe telescope. It was like a nose and it moved <laughs> <laughs> and it and it retracted and went back and forth. <laughs> uh, I think that would be a good person to name it after, though. <laughs> yeah, we could. Uh, uh, we could call it. What did he call his house? The the Hogwarts there on the island. What, what was the name uh, of his house? Swedenborg or something like that. What was the? Uh, it's in your uh, chapter in the book. You it know is, that. and I'm forgetting the name of it. Oh, this is goodness. terrible. We, bo- we both forgot. I'm forgetting my chapter. This is too bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, we could. It could be the Tycho Brahe telescope, or, or uh, who who else? The, we already have a Copernicus. Well, we've we had a, we've had Kepler. We've had the Newton. We've had the new no. Who was the? Uh, we've had the Hewitt Hugens. How do you pronounce his name? Hugens. 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 Yes, Hugens. He was a Christian, I think. Um, what was the one that do- dove into Saturn? Was that the Hugens? No, that was the uh, uh, couple of years ago. The one that went around Saturn and took wonderful pictures. Cassini. We had the Italian. Cassini. Star. Yes. Cassini. Um, we've had the. Is, I'm sure there's been a telescope. Huygens was, was the lander. Huygens. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe they should name it after an astronaut or something. Or um, I don't know. That'll be interesting. See what they they come up with. And uh, maybe maybe we uh, maybe we maybe uh, the web finds everything and we don't need to launch another one. Who knows? But web cost ten billion dollars. And I want to kind of point this out that spending this kind of money uh that says something about the glory of god that the the glory of god in the heavens is the the, the declaration itself bids us to look at it and and it's incalculable in terms of cost that we would spend this much money to do this kind of science tells you something about the awesomeness of the heavens and just what kind of declaration of glory it is. The heavens declare the glory of God so much that human beings are willing to spend billions of dollars to know more about it. Yeah, why Why do we search out these things? Mm. Um, Good question. Uh, it, I think it's something about the fact that we're made in God's image, and we want to understand, and we, we want to explore mysteries and and solve them. I think absolutely this is part of what it means to be created in the image of God. I think he has set up the universe um, to be discovered and to be known. Yes. And uh, it's what is over the door of the Cavendish Laboratory. Laboratory, that's a bathroom. Laboratory, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, James Clerk Maxwell, when he built the first Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge, put over the door... Psalm 111, 2, great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Yes. And, uh, you know, so even if you're not a professing believer in Jesus, uh, studying nature, you know, there's a whole, people dedicate their lives and entire careers to studying the physical creation. Mm-hmm. So that's um, just a fascinating thing. And so hooray for James Webb. Congratulations to everybody involved. What a, an amazing technological achievement. And uh, yeah. we look forward to, and I'm sure you'll be hearing, we'll be talking about uh, web pictures this summer, and uh, that'll be exciting. And so stay tuned here to Good Heavens, uh, and Wayne and I will try to break down what's out there and how it all points to the glory of God in Jesus. Yeah, so, so what do you, what, what else do you say, Wayne? How, what so, do you want to say to 
Well, all, all of this is part of why scientists are all jazzed up about the James Webb Telescope. Amen. And it's something that Christians can appreciate because we we know who the Creator is. That's and, right. That makes it all the more enjoyable uh, that this is our Father's world and He created it to be known. Uh, this make, is our Father's universe. That's, that's right. right. He, he made it um, and created it and sustains it and delights that we delight in it. He made it to be uh, known and uh, to remind us of his invisible attributes. So, uh, Wayne, it's been a wonderful chat, and uh, we will see you next time right here on... Good Heavens. Good Heavens. Good Heavens is a production of Watchman Fellowship Incorporated. Arlington, Texas. For more information on apologetics, cults, world religions, and our sister podcast, Apologetics Profile, visit watchman.org.